I want to start today's sermon with a question. And here's a question. What, what can you do? What can I do? What can any of us do to make God love us more than he does? What, what can we do to make God love us more? Now, that's probably a kind of a... I'm not so, you know, we might have some ideas floating around. I mean, you know, back when I was in high school and I was courting Christina, trying to make her fall in love with me, I, I knew the stuff I wanted to try, you know. And, and, and I tried a lot of different things. I'm not sure any of it worked, but she fell in love with me anyways. So it's, it's 30, almost 31 years of marriage. I used to write Christina love notes. So I wrote her a love note today. It's a little shorter than the old ones, but... It just says that you're the best, and you're the best for me. So, but she's got a whole stack of them, and I'm kind of hoping she goes before me, because then I can get rid of them before the boys get their hands on them and have to have that as my memory, kind of down-the-road kind of idea. And Christina's father had a huge sweet tooth, and she inherited that, so I used to get her candy. And one of her favorites is licorice, you know? So I didn't put a bow on that, so, you know? And then... Even though in my own mind, this is kind of a waste of money because you're giving away something that's dead. You could get it, you know, cause, I mean, it's, it's already dead, right? There's no roots. These things are dying. But anyways, it's a dozen red roses, right? There we go. Yay. I'm still getting leftovers for lunch, I'm telling you, all right? But in certain ways, in certain relationships, we kind of know what to do. I mean... Actually, the gifts somewhat got a little strange. I remember the first gift I ever gave her was when we, we were in high school. It was the first Christmas that we were dating, and I gave her a new sweater. And I found out years later she hated that sweater. I thought it was <laughs> ugly, you know. And, um, and I didn't know her very well, so I couldn't really tell whether she liked it or not, you know. And, and, and you're all caught up in, you know, did she like it or not, or whatever, you know, that kind of idea. And then I remember when she graduated from high school. And she's got to be the only person in the world who got a new rocking chair from her boyfriend for graduating from high school. But I gave her a new rocking chair to take to her dorm room. We still have that rocking chair. The boys went to sleep in that rocking chair a lot of nights, but we just kind of made, made it through. We still have it. So, you know, and, and um, but, so, you know, there, we, we, in certain aspects of our lives, we kind of know what we need to do to try to make someone like us more, to love us more, to somehow butter it up or whatever, and that kind of idea. But what about this question? But how, what, what is it that you and I can do to make God love us more? And it was a part of me that was tempted to kind of let you answer that question out loud in our service. But, but that really wouldn't be fair because it's, really the answer is there isn't anything you can do to make God love you. Part of the message of the cross, part of what we celebrate during this whole season, this wonderful word that we use of redemption, that God has personally intervened in human history and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You know, we understand that God has created us in His image. He designed us to live in relationship with Him, but that that relationship was broken because we exercised this God-given gift to make choices and, 
every single one of us, starting with Adam and Eve and down, down through the generations, every single one of us has taken that instinct that God gave us to make choices, and we've chosen to reject what God wanted for us and to choose what we wanted for ourselves. And all of us found ourselves in a place where we were alienated from God. Because He's holy and we're not. Somehow or another, the two couldn't go together, but you know, God's love didn't stop. And so He personally intervened in human history in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who became one of us while staying God and died in our place that we might have a relationship with Him that lasts forever. And there isn't anything that you and I can do to make God love us anymore. Now, part of what I want you to understand is that this is something that's really hard for you and I to understand here and here. I mean, we we can read it off the pages when we get good enough at it. You know, we, we, can, we can get that kind of idea, get it out of the Bible and that kind of stuff. We can kick it around maybe in some life group meetings that we have or whatever. But, but when it comes down into the way that you and I live our days on, on a regular basis, this concept that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more because He already loves us as much as He possibly can, that idea doesn't penetrate very deep. And some of that is because from the earliest steps of our lives, we are programmed by the world around us that has chosen to kind of move away from God's way of thinking and wants to impart its own way of thinking. We are programmed to say that, that who we are, what our, what our value is, how much we matter, what our worth is, what our identity is. You can use any term in there that really rings your bell. What gives us significance is how well we do and what other people think about us. It's based upon performance and acceptance. You know, and it, it, it starts early, right? I mean, we go to school, you know, and you're in the first grade, and, you know, you're released out to, re, from, to recess, and it's not too long into the year you start to recognize, okay, the kids who get picked first are the ones who can kick the ball the farthest, and the kids who get to be the captains are the ones that everybody likes the most, and so right away, you, you, you kind of rise to the top of the heap because you're better at it than anybody else and because people like you more than they like other people. And that kind of determines whether you're important or less important, and it just kind of keeps growing. And this, this model is something that is so pervasive around us, it's, it's kind of like air and gravity, right? I mean, it's one of those things that it's there, and, and we just can't see it. It takes us thousands of years to see it, and some of us still don't see it. That somehow or another we take all of that and we transport it over to our spiritual journeys. You know, and, and as adults, it all gets reinforced, right? You know, I mean, I, I played baseball for a while. I was a pitcher. Why is John Lester making over $100 million throwing a baseball? And I'm not. Because he could do it better than me, Right? Or why is it that somebody's willing to spend a hundred bucks on a concert ticket to go hear somebody sing and you guys didn't have to hear a pe- pay a penny to come in and hear our team? Not that our team's not good. Sorry, I didn't mean that idea. But you know what I mean. You know, it's, you get this idea with, you know, that somehow how good you are and what other people think about you and you can say, I went to so-and-so show. You know, kind of idea. All of that somehow or another just makes it more important 
And we live with that all the time. But when you and I take that mindset and we transfer it over to our relationship with God, it is incredibly destructive. Because the whole foundation that God is trying to build our spiritual journeys on is just crumbling and unfit down below. It's, it's, it's almost like, and, and this is very hard to kind of bring out the imagery, but I'm trying, you know, the Scripture tells us that you and I have been adopted into God's family by our faith in Jesus Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world in the book of Ephesians, and with that, He God has taken us who were afar off, and He's brought us in, and we are now joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We have as much standing in the family of God as Jesus does Himself. Because God has chosen to, and it's been applied to us in our faith. But many of us are living our lives like we're the son-in-law or the daughter-in-law. What I mean by that is, if anything ever happens to the relationship that I have with Christina, I'm not, I'm not a part of her family anymore. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's only by how well I perform in this relationship whether or not I really get to stay in the family. Some of you have siblings maybe you yourself have been through a divorce and you used to be a part of a family but now you're not anymore because that really somehow the performance broke down the feelings changed and you're not a part of the family anymore but when you're adopted in you're a part of it and many of us are living our lives spiritually like we're in-laws and we may come reach a point where we're not a fa- part of the family anymore instead of understanding we've been adopted into the family of god so what we've been doing in this journey through, through Easter, we've been looking at this theme of recovering redemption. What, is, what does the work of Christ on the cross really mean to you and I in the way we relate to God and the way we experience the world? How does it really impact who we are? And what we saw last week through the concept of justification, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, was that, you know, we have been justified in Christ. And, and what that means is God's already settled all the performance factors. That, God, that, that they're, they're, you know, it's by grace that you have been saved by faith. It is not of works. It, it, it's, 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 not, it, it's not of man. It's, not of, it's a gift of God. It's not of works. There isn't a single thing that you and I do to somehow or another make ourselves look perfect in the eyes of God. And if you were here, and you can go back and listen to it on our website, it's the idea, you know, that, that you know, we, we're, it's like we're down in the minor leagues and we get called up to the Division I, you know, kind of thing. And we're in the dugout kind of idea. And, and that's, many of us are living like, well, that's, that's what grace is. Grace gets me out of the minor leagues. It gets me into God's dugout. But the only way I stay in the Division I dugout with God is if I perform well enough. But that's not the way it works. Scripture says that if we are justified by Christ, then we are perfected. And that perfection lasts for eternity. So when God looks at our stat sheet while we're playing out of the Division I dugout, all he sees is the statistics of Christ. Batting a thousand. <laughs> you know? And, 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 it, and, it's, and it removes all that kind of somehow or another. I've got to be good enough. But many of us, even as we get to that point, we, we really struggle with, well, how does God really feel about me? I know Jesus paid the penalty. It's... I stood in court and God declared me not guilty because it was the track record of Christ instead of my track record that got read off. And so I've been set aside. There's no more double jeopardy. I'm set for eternity. I'm 
innocent now in the eyes of God, but how does God really feel about me? Because God's holy, right? God gets mad at sin, right? I'm not perfect yet. I know the Scripture says I've been declared perfect in Christ, but you know, every once in a while I trip up a little bit, you know? And when I, you know, how does that all work? And, and so I want to speak to you today about God's love for you. And, and somehow in my feeble efforts, I want to try to convince you that God loves you completely and totally and fully in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that you can do to change that, good or bad. And I want to use a passage out of 1 John chapter 4. I'd love it if you take your Bibles and turn with me over to 1 John chapter 4. There, there are Bibles underneath your chairs or the chair in front of you, and, and our text today is on page 1036, so it's over in the back of, 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 the, of the book of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read this and just, just a couple of other verses along the way, and, and I want to try to prove to you that God loves you, He loves you completely, and that there's And there's nothing that can change that. 1 John chapter 4, let me just read verses 7 through, through 10, and then I'll unpack these a little bit, and then we'll, we'll, we'll reach out to one other verse as a part of this journey. And, and I pray it just release us to experience, to recover the full impact of redemption on our lives. Now, John writes through the direction of the Holy Spirit, direction of God, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, when was the last time you used the word propitiation? You know, at, at, you may be used it in a Sunday school class, especially if you studied Hebrews with, with Paul last quarter or whatever, you know, kind of idea. But this is not a word we use very often, right? But in, in the Scripture, this is an incredibly important word, even though it's not used very often. And this... This word has the idea of to satisfy. Let's just imagine for a moment that I did something that would make Christina mad. I can't imagine what I could ever do that would make Christina mad. But, but just imagine, I may, and, and she's just really upset by it, you know. And, and out of that, I go to all kinds of efforts to somehow to satisfy her anger, to to get her over that, her being upset, and somehow correct whatever I had made wrong. When I get to that point, the Scripture could say that I had propitiated her anger. I had satisfied it. She's no longer mad at me anymore, right? And so that, that, that feeling, that emotion is, is satisfied, it's spent, it's no longer present, and it's gone. It's been propitiated. It is satisfied. The Scripture says that God... Through Christ's death on the cross, God 
satisfied, he propitiated his anger at sin forever. Now, let me translate this for you for a moment. If if Christ's death on the cross pays the penalty for our sins, and therefore we stand before God in the position of Christ, this terminology has to deal with the relationship that we have with God. One might be the fact that we're declared innocent. The other says you are loved and loved completely, and that will never change. See, in Christ's death on the cross, everything that we could possibly do that would upset God has already been satisfied. And you can't make God upset with you anymore. Now, there's lots of things that we can do that will hinder our ability to experience God's love in our lives. And we talk about those things all the time here at Hope Chapel. There's lots of things we can be doing to put ourselves in a position to be able to experience more of God's love. But there isn't a single thing that you and I can do that can make God love us more if we're in Christ. Because it's all been propitiated already. It's been satisfied. So, let me just, I want to spend a couple of minutes just trying to convince you. Because I I think this is hard to get through our minds. I mean, you know, when when I treat my kids wrong, or I lie to my boss, or, you know, I steal money from, you know, whatever... God's feelings toward me don't change. We we, we don't seem to, we we struggle with all of that. You know, I I used to read my Bible every day and pray a lot or whatever, but now it's just kind of hit or miss. And instead of going to church regularly, it just kind of comes sometimes. And I used to serve on this team and minister to people in God's name. And now I'm really, you know, God just must not love me as much anymore. Because I'm not as lovable anymore. And, and, and I just want to lay some foundations, at least that you have a fighting chance, spiritually, to be able to believe that God loves you unconditionally, fully, completely, forever in Jesus Christ through what Christ did on the cross. It's all been satisfied forever. And here's the first thing I want you to see, and it, it comes out of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8 in First John 4. The scripture says that God is love. It is the first reason that you should believe that God loves you just the way you are and will always love you no matter who you are because he's already demonstrated so in Christ is because God's very nature is to love. Now, I I am a non-scientific person. I got through college with never having to take a science lab. You know, I, I just, give me the soft sciences. It was much, I, I liked all that stuff, you know. But I know this n- enough. And those smart people in the room can correct me. And I'm looking at the WPI students down front. But the smallest particle of matter that still demonstrates the nature of an element is an atom, right? Did I get that right? That's the performance side. I'm sorry. I shouldn't feel any different about myself. You get below that to neutrons, electrons, protons, that kind of stuff, then that's kind of different. They don't have the same, you know, they don't necessarily demonstrate. I'm telling you, no matter how far down you look into the nature of God, all you're going to see, you're going to see love. You, you, You can't get to a point when you're putting God underneath the microscope, you can't get down to a point 
when you're not going to see that God is love. It is the very essence, the very nature. It is the persona. It is the being. It is the purpose. It is the heart. He is love. And that is God's nature, is to love. The Scripture also tells us that, and this is true from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, verse 8, that Jesus, who is God, is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, we could go through a lot. What that means is that God never changes. So God's nature is to love, and God's nature never changes. So what in the world would make us think that we can make God love us more? Wouldn't that be changing God? God is love. God never changes. Yet somehow or another, we think by the course of how we go along through our lives that somehow or another we make the love of God go up or down, but the Scripture tells us it never changes. The first reason why you and I can be convinced that God loves us and loves us unconditionally and that will never change and God loves us completely and fully from the full depths of His heart is because God's nature is to love and God never ever changes. And there's nothing that you and I can ever do to make him change. Second truth. God has already taken steps in human history to prove to you, to prove to me, to prove to all of us that he loves us. Look back at the text. Look at verse 10. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God. It's not like we were sitting around the campfire saying, you know, boy, what, those stars are pretty incredible. Look at the beauty of this landscape or whatever. And, you know, look at our bodies. God is just amazing. We should, we should love him. You know what? I'm going to love God. This, it's not, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is already taking concrete steps in history that cannot be undone to demonstrate across all the widest canvas he can, that he loves us. He's on record. It's been proven. It's fact. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, it, for God demonstrated his own love towards us is the way the Apostle Paul put it in the book of Romans. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still fighting to get it, Christ died for us. God has already proven, gone on record, and demonstrated to every single one of us that he loves us. And that very act is for him to draw us into a loving relationship with himself so that we can experience that love in our lives. God's, God's already gone on record for it. It's, it's, it's what the book is full of. Third truth, and this is where I want to take you to just a different spot in the scriptures. I'm going to go over to the book of Romans for just a minute. Okay? Romans chapter 8. I'm going to give you a page number in just a second. Page 962. If you use one of our black Bibles, it's page 962. If you're using the book of Romans, uh, if you're using your Bible, book of Romans is the first book after the four, after the five history books, if you will, of, of the New Testament. The four Gospels and the book of Acts and then you come to the book of Romans. Here's what this is a very well-known, we go to this for a lot of comfort, but I, I want you to just look at this through a different lens. Verse 38 and 39 of chapter 8. 
For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. Usually we fit in one of those two categories, right? We're either dead or we're alive. How many of you are alive this morning? The rest of you are dead? Is that it? So, you know, so neither, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, the way you live life, not angels, not rulers, not things present. How many of you are living in the present? Some of us would like to be living in the past. Nor things to come. In other words, nothing in the future. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That usually means me and you, among other things. So not life, not things present, not things in the future, not a single created thing has the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I think that covers us. Any of you guys fit outside of that court category somewhere? You guys, anybody else not alive and not dead? One of those two things? Any of us not created? Any of us not in the present? Any of us not going to have a future? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing that has the power to separate us from the love of Christ. And this is God saying this to you and to me so that we can live our lives today with absolute assurance that we don't need to earn God's love. We just should experience it and respond to him with hearts that are full of love. So why is it that so many of us don't experience God's love in our lives? I don't think I have the, the, the exhaustive list on this, but let me give you a few suggestions. Because by and large, I, I, I've known lots of believers who, who understand that they've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, but they don't understand how God has loved them completely in Jesus Christ. They've been positioned as a saint, but they struggle to feel accepted by God. And this equation of I'm worth, my identity, my value is based upon what I do and what other things about me. Well, we can get the idea, well, you know, I'm, I know what Christ has done for me, but I'm really struggling with whether or not God accepts me the way that I am. And the scripture is trying to scream to us. Why? Trying to scream to us, God loves you completely just the way you are. He longs for you to be shaped in such a way that you can experience more than his, of his love, but there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more because he already loves you completely. What, what are some of the barriers to all that? The list could probably go on and on. Let me just give you a few things. One is, whether we like to admit it or not, there is an element of pride in our journey. And we take pride, and to a certain extent, we even have greater confidence in what we know that we've accomplished. So we find ourselves in life, and we have a choice between the confidence we can establish of all the things that I've done to make God love me, to become more lovable to God. You know, I've changed. I don't do this. I don't swear. I don't beat my dog anymore. I don't do this. We we get this big list, and we feel a whole lot better about that than what we do and what God's already done for us in Jesus Christ. We put a greater emphasis, a greater value on what we can do rather than based upon what God has done. And so we're not convinced that God loves us completely just the way that we are. 
Many of us probably wouldn't use that word pride to describe that, but it gets to a place where we really put more confidence in our own acts rather than in the action of God. Second, and the scripture would, would, is, is pretty clear about all this. For a lot of us, the reason why we struggle with this is just because we're spiritually immature. You can read the book of 1 Corinthians. You can read many other places in the New Testament. The writers are saying, you know what, I shouldn't have to te- be teaching you this stuff. This stuff is so fundamental or whatever, but you guys are, are just, you're just spiritually immature. You're still fleshly. You're still carnal. You know, you, you, you just don't get it. And, and Paul, and at the end of his, his long treatise of writing to this church at Rome, that he, explaining what God had done for them in Christ and how they had, now were saints in Christ and they had this position of being the chosen ones and and, and God loved them completely and fully, and he demonstrated that clearly in history. He says, you know what? So don't be conformed to this world anymore. Let God change the way you think. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And many of us, we, we just aren't willing or committed enough to let God change the way that we think. We still look at it as, I am what I can achieve and what everybody else thinks about me. Rather than saying, God's already said, it's all satisfied. I am passionately, unconditionally, eternally, and permanently in love with you. And that's never, ever going to change. We struggle with being able to think that way because we're still spiritually immature. Here's the last one. And this, maybe this is a circular argument, but the fact that God loves us that way It's unbelievable. Isn't it? It, it, It's just unbelievable. Isn't isn't it just unbelievable that God would send His Son into the world to become one of us, live a perfect life, die in our place, and through that communicate to us that we are perfect and we are fully accepted as His children when that emotion is never going to change for all of eternity. Isn't that just too good to be true? It's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. (laughs) But that's exactly what God wants us to believe. Because it's the truth that's going to last for eternity. So how are you experiencing the love of God today? Are you trying to earn it? Are you trying to somehow make yourself more worthy of it? Or you are simply relishing and overwhelmed by the gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ. I, I don't even know if I have the words to put it into, into expression. Just our response of saying, thank you, God. I can get off the treadmill. It's not about performance. Not about somehow trying to be the most likable, the most lovable. God, thank you for letting me get off. And just to be able to embrace the life that you've given me in Jesus Christ. To believe in the unbelievable by faith. Let's pray together for just a minute. God, I pray you take my, in many ways, feeble attempts. To, incredi- to communicate such an incredible truth. 
and drive it deep into who we are. And we can walk out of this place today of people who have been redeemed, knowing that we're perfect in your eyes and that we can have all the hope, the joy, the peace, the power, the strength, the purpose that there is to be had because you love us. And that's never going to change. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come and lead us in our closing song here. And just as we begin to sing, our ushers will come forward. You can place your connection cards in there. You also also have an opportunity to uh, place your offering in there. Let's stand and sing to the Lord this morning. Let's sing to the God who loves us.